That was a, a video of a roller coaster at an amusement park in New, uh, Ohio, Cedar Point. Some of you have probably, some of you have been there. Has anybody ever been there? I see a hand or two. Okay, it's one of the great amusement parks in the world, more roller coasters than anywhere else. That was the Top Thrill Dragster roller coaster. It goes up 420 feet in the air. To give you a frame of reference, the, the, the tallest building in, in uh, Little Rock is a little over 500 feet. And the second tallest, the Regions Bank building, is just about the same height as this roller coaster. You go from zero to 120 miles an hour in just about two seconds. And you go up that 440 feet and you come down and the whole ride takes 17 seconds. And it seemed like when I rode that, that it went in about five seconds because I had no idea where I was. And I think when I started to yell, the words caught up to me when the ride ended. I love this amusement park. I went to it all the time as a kid. And then a few years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go there, just us. You know, my parents kept the kids and we went back to Pennsylvania. I realized I've gotten older. If my kids want to ride these things, I may ride with them. But just as, as myself, I'm like, you know what? That was great when I was... 19, when I'm 42, I can leave that in the, the, the rear view mirror. But it was quick up and quick down. Things go our way of life sometimes. Sometimes we're sitting there, just everything is fine, and all of a sudden things go our way. You know, we get a new job. The girl says yes when we ask her out on a date. We, we, somebody we know gets saved. Something is going great, and we're, we're at the, the pinnacle of life. And just as quickly as we got there, we can come rocketing back down to a point of, of, of lowness and depression and hurt. Everything that was going well can just fall apart. And as we look at the life of Elijah, we have one of those moments. So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. When we last left Elijah... At the end of chapter 18, he was at the high point, wasn't he? I mean, for, for several years, he was hiding from King Ahab. He spent this time in this, this uh, the, the brook of water near Kishon where he's by himself being fed by birds. Then he had to stay with this widow for a, a length of time. Then he finally gets to confront Ahab. He does that. He confronts the prophets of Baal. There's this big showdown on Mount Carmel. God responds to him, sends down fire, consumes the altar. He slaughters the prophets of Baal. Last week we saw that he then, uh, 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 it rained. He prayed and God brought rain. The one thing that they absolutely needed, it hadn't rained for three years. It pours down rain. He's so invigorated by this, he outruns Ahab's chariot to this town of Jezreel. I mean, he's on top of the world. And it seems like, I mean, if this was a Hollywood movie at this point, he'd show up in Jezreel, there'd be a huge revival, all of the, the nation would turn to follow God, and everything would go, the credits would roll, and it would just be this amazing story. But that's not what happens at all. In fact, Elijah, in the, the period of probably 24 to 48 hours, goes from on top of the world to a point where he says, listen, I, I just want to die. I, I, I'm sick of life. I'm sick of everything. God, just go ahead and just take me. And there are people that can relate to that. We just, we sat up here and we prayed this morning as a, as a worship team before you all got here. We talked about those that had lost people this week or this time of year. And some people, it's years past. 
They get to this, you know, the holiday season and it's just, it's a tough, tough time. Other things that have gone on in people's lives and they know what it's like to feel like they've, they've reached the pit of despair. And so as we look at that this morning and we look at 1 Kings chapter 19, we see Elijah and what happens to him and we see a great and mighty God that works in the life of Elijah. It's not just, you know, when we deal with people that are struggling, they're going through the difficulties. Here's a Bible verse, just, you know, pick it up, let's move on. There's there's some things that God does here that recognizes, listen, some people go through really, really dark times. And we don't want to fall in the trap of the world to say, listen, the Bible is great, just, you know, to read it, get you some pick-me-ups on Sunday. But when the real problems of life come, the real depressing moments have come, that's where we go see some professional that that we forget the Bible, set it on a shelf. The word of God has been there for thousands of years. It is his word to us. It has God's word to us for all seasons of life. Even those moments when we're down at the bottom. And so as we look at at Elijah in this chapter, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18. We're going to see a guy that's at the bottom. And this great God, how does he respond to him? Now, I'm not going to ask you to stand because what I'm going to do is read a few verses and we're going to go through that. There's three things I want to look at. We'll go through section by section. And as God responds to us, guides us through the roller coasters of life, the first thing that we see in this chapter, the first few verses, is that the Christian walk will have times of depression. It will have times where people hit the bottom. Look at what happens beginning in verse 1. Chapter 19, it says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets, the prophets of Baal, with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness And came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough now. Lord, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's. So Ahab shows back up in Jezreel. Tells his wife. This is a man. His wife quite clearly wears the pants in this relationship. He tells her what's happened. And Jezebel is not impressed. This is where we finally get introduced to this wicked, wicked woman. She is not impressed with the fire that came down and consumed the altar. She's not impressed that it's starting to rain. She's not impressed by any of this. She's not convicted. She doesn't repent. In fact, she sends messengers to Elijah and says, listen, I'm going to have you killed. I'm going to take you out. Now, there's a part of us that when we read this, we have to admit we're a little bit surprised maybe about Elijah's reaction. It doesn't seem like a guy who's experienced everything he's experienced in the past three years, especially, but especially the past few hours, would respond this way. There's an expectation that he might be like, you said, what, Jezebel? Have you not seen what God has done for me the past two days? He's going to take you out, which he does, by the way, eventually, but... But Elijah doesn't respond this way. He tucks tail and runs a long way away. And there's a part of me that goes, why? I mean, Elijah, you had the birds feed you. Then you went to this widow, and the oil never ran out. The water never ran out. You had food. 
Then you faced this wicked king, and he didn't kill you. God sustained you. And then you, you, you had this big contest with, with the prophets of Baal yourself, and, this, and God sent fire and consumed the altar. And if that wasn't enough, then you prayed for it to rain, and there's a huge thunderstorm. You outran the chariots. How in the world with all of this? And you stayed just right there with God the whole time. This one woman makes this one pronouncement and you tuck tail and run. And I think that and then I think, how many times in my life does the slightest little mishap cause me to just... I bought a Chevy Malibu about seven or eight years ago. It was a used car, but it was pretty nice. It only had about 50,000 miles on it when I bought it. And I brought it home, and the battery kept dying on it. Every time I'd go out and, and, you know, that stupid sound that you hate, and I'd get the battery replaced, and I'd be like, all right, I'm good. And come on. And it turned out it was that the little vanity light, you know, the little flip-down thing where there's a mirror and these little lights. They just would never shut off. So they eventually got that fixed. And I was like, all right. Then I was driving with my wife in the car. We were headed to, to a hospital visit in, in Jackson, Tennessee. And I got to a traffic light. And, you know, I, I push, pushed on the gas when it turned green, and it starts to get up to about 15 miles an hour, and it's an automatic, you know. It's supposed to shift into second gear, and it just didn't shift. You know, you hear the, the engine just keeps getting louder and louder and louder. I'm like, what is going on? And it just would never. So then I'd get to the next stoplight, and I thought, maybe this time it'll work. And it didn't. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I bought a lemon. You know, I got this piece of junk, Malibu, it does, it's just, and it was expensive to get it fixed. And I just, ah, it just drove me nuts. And I, I was so angry and upset. And, 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 and my wife looked at me, and she's like, you know, this is just a car, right? It's like, yeah. She's like, you're, you're, it's just ruining everything. For, I mean, you'll get it fixed. If it's a lemon, you get another one. It's not the end of the world. But at that moment, just, you know. How many times have you been there? Just something comes into your life, something happens, and it just, and that's nothing. I mean, Elijah hears the Jezebel, and he's not stupid. He knows Jezebel is really the one he has to fear. Ahab goes with whatever. But Jezebel is the one that says, listen, I'm going to have you killed. And he runs. And then notice the, the, the two things that he does that really we have to be careful of. He runs. And goes off by himself. He secludes himself. And he focuses on hopelessness. It says he arose and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. If you're not familiar with the, the, the landscape over there, remember he was in the northern kingdom. He's up here in the north. And he goes into Judah, which was the southern kingdom. And he doesn't just go down into Judah. He goes to the furthest part in Judah. As far south as he can go to Beersheba. Once he gets there, then it says he leaves his servant. The one friend in the world that he has, he leaves him behind, and he goes even further off by himself. He leaves everyone, everything behind. Now, remember, there were some prophets. There was Obadiah, if you remember in chapter 18. There were the 100 prophets he kept alive. There were some people there, but he leaves everybody. And there's a tendency in our lives, if we're not careful, when the bad things, the depressing things come into our lives, we go off by ourselves. We leave everyone behind. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? What did they do? They, they ran away. We run away. You know, there's, there's only one thing when we gather on Sunday morning as a worship service, as a church, there's only one thing that you can do here that you can't do by, by yourself at home. I mean, you can sing. You can listen to music at home. You can listen to a preacher at home, even a preacher better than me, if that's possible. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There, there are. 
You can give. You can do all of those things. What's the one thing that you have to come here for? Be with people. Fellowship. Why do you think God, why do you think in Hebrews chapter 10 it says, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. We gather together to build each other up, to bear each other's burdens. When we've gone through what some people have gone through this week, we gather together. God gave us each other for this reason. We don't do what Elijah does. Let me run and hide and sit at home and turn out the lights and just wallow in my misery. He makes that mistake of secluding himself. And then the other thing he does is focus on hopelessness. He goes off, and I'm really, verse 4 there, where he, he sits down under this tree. And you just picture it. He, he, you know, just kind of drop yourself down. And you look up at the sky, and he just says, I, I want to die. It's enough. Take my life. There's a part of me that God might say, why did you run from Jezebel? She was going to do that to you. But he focuses on the hopelessness of his situation. I'm sure there's a part of him that thought, listen, I've done everything you've asked me, God, for three years. I have jumped through every hoop. And, and, and whenever I, I thought the rain came, it was going to be this great revival, and, and that's not enough. Jezebel's going to kill me. It, it, I'm just done. Hopelessness. Do you know the thing about hopelessness is this. Hopelessness is not a real thing. You can feel hopeless. We've all probably felt hopeless. You can believe the situation is hopeless. You can kind of conduct your life like your life is hopeless. But hopelessness, because of what Jesus Christ did, what the Word of God teaches us, is not ever a real thing. But it's so easy. That's what Satan does. He gets us to focus on Everything we don't have, the situation, how bad it is to say, listen, it's hopeless. And this is a situation, it, 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 it happens to everyone. John the Baptist, Jesus said of, of the, the peop, of people born to women, there's nobody been like John the Baptist. But there's a moment we read in the New Testament, John the Baptist, he's in prison. And he's, he's struggling. He sends some of his disciples, go tell Jesus, are, are you really the one? There's... there's Desperation in John the Baptist. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8, he's, he's writing to the Corinthian church and he says, listen, he's talking about some of the, the experiences that they faced and he says, we despaired even of our lives. Paul, we think Paul, he's faced everything. He's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, all of these terrible things. But even he admitted in 2 Corinthians there, he said, listen, there came a moment, I just, my life, I, I didn't want it anymore. One of the great Preachers of the past few hundred years was a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He became the pastor of a church in London at the time. London actually had a lot of Christians. The, the tabernacle, and, and, and he was, thousands of people went there, and you'd think he'd be on the top of the world. And he wrote, and his, he talked to some of his, his protégés. He said, listen, when I got to that point, I, I was depressed. I didn't think I was up to the task. I was scared. I was in the pit. Some of the greatest people that we know, great followers of God, have hit those moments. It's not uncommon. And some of you are there. And the things we have to be careful of are exactly what Elijah does, that we just get hopeless and we get away from the body of believers. Don't do that. So there's Elijah laying under a tree saying, I'm ready to die. And so we go to the point number two, that the Christian walk will have refreshing. Look at verse five through eight. Look at how God responds to him. 
Verse 5, he says, He lay down and slept under the tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. I love this, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So here you have Elijah. He's tucked tail. He's run. He's gone to this tree. And, and, and he's run away from everything. He says, God, just, I, just go ahead and take my life. And how does God respond? Does he sit there and say, listen, Elijah, look at what I've done for you for the past three years. I've performed miracle after miracle. I, I sent the fire down and consumed the altar. I allowed you to slaughter all these prophets. I sent rain. What are you, what are you doing running away? I've, I've done all these things. Wouldn't I have protected you? We sometimes, I mean, why doesn't God respond to him this way? He doesn't at all, does he? In one of the most touching moments, God lets him sleep. As a father with four kids, amen. Thank you, God, for that. Not only that, he feeds him, lets him sleep again. And then he says, arise, eat. The journey is too great for you. The journey there can refer to both what happened before this and what's about to happen, everything he's gone through, and then also this this 40-day trip that he's about to take. Sometimes in life, I think with Elijah, he just, he had reached the end of, of what he could do. There's a little thing you see sometimes on, I thought about doing it this morning, but I won't, where you take a watermelon and you start putting rubber bands around it. Have you ever seen this illustration? You know, you set a watermelon down, you put the first rubber band around it, and it doesn't do anything. But then you put the second one and the third one, and it starts to squeeze in the middle. And for those of you in the front row, it's for your sake. I didn't do this this morning, because once you eventually get to that one rubber band, it's one too many. And the whole thing goes everywhere. And I think for Elijah, the three and a half years, that, that, that when Jezebel said what she did, that final rubber band got put on his life. He just said, I, I can't take it any more. And here you have this, 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 this loving, caring God that says, all right, let me, let me refresh you, Elijah. When I was in seminary, I once had a, a professor ask me this question, and this wasn't just to me, it was to a bunch of us. He said, what size church, what's the biggest church you think you'd be able to, to be the pastor of? And of course, all of us thought, well, what's the biggest church I can think of? Say, just a little bit bigger than all. We just, you know, you throw out a number, whatever, and there's probably here a few hundred people, a couple hundred people. And, of course, he lets us all do this because he's setting us up, and so we all say whatever we say. And he said, all right, how many disciples did Jesus have? Well, he had a, a lot, but what are the main ones that he had? How many? Twelve. He's like, now, if he had twelve, and he's the son of God, I mean, and he said, how many of those, I mean, did they all make it? No, he's like, even Jesus lost one. So what does that say for you? So we listened to him and he said, listen, it just means be careful. You can overwhelm yourself. You have to sit there and understand that, and this is the thing he really told us, God doesn't love you because what you can do for him. And I think of that when I look at the story of Elijah. He has done everything God has asked up until this point. He's gone through so many things. And here he's just reached the bottom of his rope. And God isn't sitting there saying, you know, get up, kick him, whatever. He's, he says, listen, Elijah, 
rest. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross because we earned it. He didn't save us because of what we can do for him. He didn't do that for you for any reason other than he loves you. He died on the cross because he's a graceful, merciful God. And too often in life, if we're not careful, we try to to earn God's love. We try to keep his love through our efforts, and we beat ourselves up so much so that all we ever think about is when I fail, all he is is out to get me. I look at my kids sometimes, and sometimes, you know, they get on, they do some things where I want to, you know, but sometimes I know that they've messed up. And what they need from me is just to remind them, I love you, and I care for you. I'm your dad. And I see God refreshing one of his, saying, I don't love you, Elijah, because of all of the things you did with Ahab and the prophets of Baal and all of that. I love you because you're one of mine. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are, do, are really hard workers and faithful people. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what? I will give you rest. And so we see the Christian walk has depression and refreshing. And then finally, these last verses, there's revealing. Look at verse 9. He says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nemishi. You shall anoint him to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of abel Maloah, you shall anoint him to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So two things we see in this, these last sections about revealing. The first is this whole thing reveals a little bit about Elijah. And when we reach the depressing moments of life, it often reveals a little bit about ourselves. God comes to him and asks him a question. What are you doing here? And Elijah responds. And his response is mostly truth, and there's a little bit that's not. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He's right. Elijah has been that. He has 
done that for three years. Then he says, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Exactly right. Now I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life. Well, there he's fudging it, just a smidge. We know about Obadiah. We know about the hundred prophets that were there. So we know that there were some others. But he says all that. And then God does something, well, theologians have pondered for a long time. Tells him to come out of the cave. Elijah doesn't. And he sends these three experiences. There's this wind so powerful it breaks the rocks. Then there's an earthquake that shakes the cave. Then there's a fire that's, I'm assuming, pretty hot. And then after that, there's this little quiet voice, a whisper. And God asks the exact same question. What are you doing here? This time Elijah responds. He gets up, comes out. And amazingly, he answers it the exact same way, word for word. He says exactly the same thing. I've been very jealous for you. Uh, they've thrown down your co- or they've broken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets. I'm it. And it's amazing that even experiencing what, what, a great miracle again, you know, the, the, the earthquake, the wind, the fire, all of that, he still responds the same way. And we don't know. We can't tell the tone of his voice. Has anything changed? But he responds exactly the same way. And what we see is he's focused on himself and his problems, don't we? When you look at his response, he's focused on what's the problem? Well, everybody's out to get me. I'm by myself. And then God sends this, this great experience, and that doesn't seem to move him. I was looking online in, in some of the major cities in America and in Europe. On the sidewalks, they're creating this separate lane. All right, for people that are walking. And it's identified as a uh, smartphone lane. And the whole point is there have been so many people on their smartphones that their heads are turned down doing whatever it is, texting, scrolling, you know, looking through things. They've been walking into telephone poles, walking into other people, walking into traffic and getting hit and killed because they're so engrossed in what's going on on their phone. So now in these cities, they're creating lanes that unless you're on your phone, you're not supposed to be in the lane. And like a little thing comes up at the, where you get to the, you know, the end of the street so you don't walk out into traffic. They're so engrossed in what's this that they miss everything else that's going on. And you can kind of see that with Elijah here. He's so engrossed in his problems, what's going on in his life, that he's, he's lost sight of what God has been doing. He's lost sight of the past three years. He's lost sight of the God that can send a wind so powerful it cracks rocks. Earthquakes to shake the mountain that he's in. A fire that who knows where it came from. It just... None of that. He's, he's just gotten so engrossed in it. God, I'm by myself. There's no one there. Look what everybody's done. I've been there, have you? We look at our, our own, our individual lives. We get, when our problems start to overwhelm us, we just get so focused on those. They're overwhelming. They're at, and we miss what God is doing in this world. We miss what God has done in our lives up until this point. I've always thought of this. Somebody told me this once. Everything that has ever concerned you, worried you, brought you down, whatever it is, has brought you to the point you're at right now. Sitting in this room at 11.06 on this Sunday morning. You had so many things that you thought were going to kill you, they were going to destroy your life, they were going to ruin you. All of those things came, and what did they do? They led you to right now. And you're going to face things over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. They're going to make you think your world's coming to an end, and you're going to get so focused on that, and you're going to forget all the ways that God brought you to where you are now. 
And so he says all of these things, and then he hears this quiet voice, and after he's had some things revealed about himself, God reveals some things about who he is, who God is. Verse 15, God tells him everything that's going to happen. Get up, he says, and he tells him what? Go anoint this guy king. Go anoint this other guy king. Your your Elisha's, I'm going to replace Elisha. Are you with Elisha? I'm going to take care of some things. And then he says something at the very end that, that just... I think is the epitome of what God is doing here. He says in verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. God is talking about his sovereignty. He's talking about how nothing is outside of his control. That the problems that seem so big for us when we are down in the pits, when we are focused on ourselves and our issues, we forget that nothing is outside of God's control and ability and his sovereignty. Nothing. And so he tells Elijah exactly what's going to take place. Now remember, for we read this and in, 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 we've already know what everything that happens after this. Elijah didn't know this. But God tells him everything that's going to happen, and he responds. And for us today, sitting here in 2018, God has told us the future, hasn't he? Yes, the world seems to be spinning out of control at times, but he said, listen, I've got it under control. I mean, there's a whole book at the end of the Bible that kind of, it's hard to understand, but it does describe one major thing. Jesus is coming back. And so since you know that, he's like, that should put some things in perspective. I have it under control. I showed you the... That roller coaster at the very beginning. And when I was in college, I worked at a different amusement park. And this was a much smaller amusement park. And we had a roller coaster called the Comet. Now, the Comet was very old. It's one of the ten oldest, I think, roller coasters in the world. And because of that, it's kind of neat because it's old, but it's not. <laughs> it's about 60 feet in the air. And it's it's nothing to, you know, the only time it would be really a Comet is if a Comet hit it. You know, that that would, it's not fast. Anyway, we would get there the first the first part of the year. This is in Pennsylvania. And so every year we had to get the comet ready. And and me not being exactly a giant guy, my job was to sit at the front of the comet with a big giant canister of oil. I had to pump it up. to, And they put all these big guys in the, the comet. And we'd go up the hill, you know, and you get to the top and it'd go down the first hill. And when it came up, you know, started to go up the first hill, it, it didn't really have that much speed. And so when he got to the top to curve it, my job was to squirt oil on the track so it would go because it kind of rusts over the wintertime. And when it would go down the next hill, it would never get up the next one. It would get about halfway and then it would come back. And what we had to do then is push this thing up the second hill. And, and there would be, you know, 10, 12 guys all in their 20s just for all they're worth to get it up the hill. And then it'd go, and we'd have to get it around. And we'd have to keep doing this until it could make it on its own. And you can imagine that every time we'd get to that first curve, the guys in the back are like, squirt more oil, because they wanted it to go. So I'm ready to just dump the thing on the track. Eventually, after, you know, 10 times of this, the thing would make it around the track. And as the summer progressed, it'd go just fine. In fact, it'd get some speed. I mean, for an old roller coaster, it wasn't bad. The little kids loved it. And part of it was, you know, as it whipped around the track, they felt like they were going to fly off. They felt like, you know, when it whips around. And I could assure them as a guy who had to help push this thing up a hill, you were never going to fly off the track. It weighed, I forget how many thousands of pounds this thing weighed. It was not going to fly off the track. But for some of those little kids, that's how they felt. They were whipped around. All right, are we going to make it? And, and yeah, you're going to make it. You're not going to go off the track. 
And as followers of Christ, as we live our lives, sometimes we feel like our lives are going to go off the track. I've hit this part. Look at my problems. Look at the issues. Look at everything that's going on in my life. I can't see an out. Let me assure you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you won't go off the track. We know how he's told us, just like he tells Elijah, it's going to sometimes get uglier before it gets prettier, but I have it under control. As we enter this time of year, the Christmas time of year, while this is a time a lot of us are joyful, we're excited, you know, getting ready to put up the tree. Some of you had it up for like three months already, you know. There are others that this is a tough time of the year. They can kind of relate to those first four verses where Elijah's like, just go ahead. I'm, I'm, things haven't been great. I'm struggling. And what we have to be reminded of is that God has it under control. To pray to ask God, give me some people in my lives that can come in that can build me up. That's why I encourage people to be part of a life group, to, to have people come and rally around you. I was so encouraged this week as I'd see on Facebook people that were inviting other people to Thanksgiving meals and saying, come on over and do all of these things. This is how God gets us through these things. This is how God guides us through when the roller coaster hits the bottom. And it's going to hit the bottom. If it hasn't done it for you, it will at some point. It's going to maybe for the person sitting beside you this morning. But never forget that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead told us how it all works out to say, listen, I have it under control.